This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life forms. You're listening to the full episode of Rewilding with Derek Gao. First, let's start with the basics. What is rewilding and why should you care about it? Rewilding is a very particular form of restoration ecology, which is a pretty fancy way of saying bringing nature back into a state of balance. Rewilding does some things that other forms of restoration just don't do. Most often, it involves reintroducing the missing parts and processes of an ecosystem, such as keystone or native species, carnivores, herbivores. Imagine jaguars, bisons, wildcats, water voles, shrews, aurochs, all things big and large. Those are just some of the friends who can be present when land is being rewilded. And when these animals return to somewhere they may not have been for hundreds of years, they do what they like to do best. They are themselves and they begin to chomp, munch, trample, poop, eat. And this means that they begin spreading seeds, drawing down carbon, changing the vegetation of riverbanks, recreating and restoring all kinds of invisible relationships and behaviors that enable life to exist. Some animals are architects, like the beaver, who build dams that make nests for yet more species. And some animals actually need our architects to remove obstructions to allow fish and rivers to flow once more. Honestly, once I got into it, I found rewilding to be like the portal of Narnia that brought me into the life worlds of so many species, because it began to illuminate how each different part is magnificently affecting the whole. It stretches our minds, and it asks us to expand our empathy towards other species. It asks us to expand our ability to share, because we need to share our landscapes and allow these other lives back into their original homelands. So there you have it. Rewilding is about letting nature do its thing and enabling the Earth's natural rhythms to express and ebb and flow, and about us humans learning to cohabitate with other forms of life. For now, let's kick off with Derek Gao, infamous amongst rewilding circles for his leadership in reintroducing the beaver back into European landscapes. Through Derek and his delightfully funny and informative book, Bringing Back the Beaver, I've become somewhat obsessed with beavers, but more on that in just a minute. I think you'll appreciate his fast-paced, no-nonsense take on just what needs to happen to scale up rewilding and what might stand in the way. Our conversation ranges from his delightful descriptions of restored landscapes to Elizabethan fat bishops, prehistoric cattle, wolf gods, and water voles at Gorgonzola riverbanks. Here is Derek Gow. Good to see you, Derek. Hi. Well, thank you for your kind invitation. Thank you so much for being here. Um, let's just jump right in. On this podcast, we focus a lot on how to reevaluate 
the human relationship with other species. And we speak with a lot of our guests about this fundamental fact that if we try and restore land without restoring relationship, we're not going to get very far in the long term. And so knowing about the work that you do in the world uh, in rewilding and restoring land and reintroducing species to ecosystems and having worked uh, a little bit in that space myself, it really seems that the most common obstacle is less the technicalities, although those parts are fascinating and tricky, but what happens in here, right? Like inside the human head. (laughs) And so, so to kick it off, I really want to ask you about this, these obstacles and in your work, what is it that you keep butting up against that causes the frustration and, and the uh, the inertia that you see in the world? Yes, well, I mean, there's a friend of mine in Germany who's even bigger and fatter and more bearded than I am. And he will tell you with a German accent that managing beavers has nothing to do with the beavers themselves. It has everything to do with people. You know, people ask, well, what, what, it, what it is in their heads that stops them? And, you know, honestly... It's a concoction of all things. It's history. It's tradition. It's the idea for some people that we have, you know, in Britain, we have lost this halcyon, Edwardian, Victorian shooting, fishing, hunting countryside. And that is the way that it should be. And that what we should do with every fiber in our being is strive to get back to that because that's an inverted commas natural and everything else is wrong. The idea for many people, especially when it comes to animals like the beaver or the wolf or whatever else, that we are going to live alongside anything that takes anything from us is just unacceptable. It's a farming, settler, elemental mindset, and and it's very difficult to counteract. It's so deeply ingrained that Having conversations with people who've who've reached that kind of mindset later in life, or even people in their teens who are, who are, who are heading strongly towards it, is is next to impossible. They they can't understand that when you know if you're. I mean, I used to farm a lot of sheep, and we were lambing sheep efficiently commercially. You know, we'd lose about ten percent of the lambs that the, those sheep produced, and that would just be things that were you know, born in a placental bag and and they would never breathe or there would be all manner of other complications. And as you filled the bags outside the lambing sheds with all these dead lambs, you thought nothing of it. You know, the knacker man comes, he lifts the bag, you lift the bag on with a tractor, they go away, they're burnt. You you get a bill for them being burnt. And yet, you know, if we'd left those lambs out in the pasture to feed things and, and, and you'd come down in the morning when you're tired and, and 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 you've worked ridiculous hours anyway, and and you had an eagle sitting on the lamb, um, pulling its face off. Then the first reaction of most people is to go and reach for a gun, and and yet it's just crazy. All, all these these surpluses that you see in life, the wildebeest crossing the Serengeti, the saiga and the Alta, you know, in the in in northern in, in Siberia, you know, on on their you know great life treks. They produce great numbers of young or great opportunity, which predators have always used. And, and of course, sheep lambing artificially in high numbers for those predators is exactly the same thing. And yet we just don't seem to be able to rationalize or realize that. And we always view it, um, you know, with a you know hostility based on the idea it's taken something from me and that that is unacceptable. That kind of 
absurd idea of, okay, this form of life is taking something from me. It's also deeply hypocritical because the land used to belong to all these creatures before we turned up. And if anything, we took the land from them, we killed them off. And then we're in a slow extinction process and rapidly speeding up extinction process ourselves because of it. And so that that feeling of ownership over land, um, have you have you thought to trace it back? Like this land is mine, this pasture is mine. You know, I think in the in the UK and in Europe, um, I'm from Switzerland. You had the enclosures right in the 12th century, and you had this idea that land was no longer commonly held. We wouldn't be able to move across the land in more organic ways. But this notion of my stream, my forest, my whatever it may be, uh, is obviously at the core of what we're also being told to consume and to, and to buy into as, as a global economy. So I resonate with what you're saying. Like it's it's history, it's tradition, but it's also everything that we're told from the moment we're born to want and to strive towards, which is individual ownership. How have you changed minds? You know, you've got interesting so- examples in your books. <laughs> <laughs> no, sure, I don't. If I have changed minds, I mean, you meet a lot of people, and there are a lot of people who say this is great, and there are a few who say it's bad. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have no ideas to whether I'm changing minds or not. I'm saying what I think, and and yeah. I'm not even sure that you know, as you struggle to come to terms with your own understanding of issues like this, that that that, that it's right or wrong. But I mean, that this whole thing of everything being mine is yeah, it's, it's my sheep, my pheasant. The beaver's cutting down my tree, it's eating my roses, it's all gnawed a hole through my gate, everything is mine. And, you know, you look at a world now where 95% of the living biomass of the planet is us and our domestic animals. <laughs> you know, regardless of the wonderful wildlife films you see on your TV on a Sunday night, you know, you actually go into the wider environment, you know, which isn't a special nature reserve or something that's a, a relic landscape that people have preserved. And you just go and see what's there. And, and I mean, I do plenty of that. And and it's just shocking. I mean, you so seldom see anything of, of any ecological value. Normally what you're looking at are, are, are landscapes that are entirely played out. They are flayed to death, you know, by, you know, sheep or by, you know, with maize production, with the soils running off into the watercourses the toxic silts underlying the rocks um, that are in the water itself, no life, no insects, deer on one side, sheep on the other. You're just looking at at, at a landscape that's an elemental breakdown. It's as near, okay, there may be some small birds, you know, flitting through the trees, but even those have declined by by, by millions over the course of the the last few decades. It's, It's... kind of hard to see how you get much lower for some of these environments and of course that's the you know when you once you've understood that then you have to start to think about what's involved in rebuilding them (laughs) i think you know without wishing to sound unduly gloomy on a sunny day you know what you begin to realize is that the destruction has been very easy but but the actual putting things back together again is going to be bloody hard, and it's not something we're well equipped for, either from a, a psychological perspective, or yeah, really from a psychological perspective, or even in terms of ability or, or, or financial resource. We make a big fuss about this sort of thing, and we pass 
laws sometimes, but you know, in the end, when you look at all the international treaties and you look at where you are a decade after the treaty's been signed, then things are not getting any better. Yeah, I think on that psychological perspective, um, you know, this thing called the shifting baseline syndrome, right? Where yeah. like you don't really know what something if you never knew what an ecosystem was in more of its vivacity and, and expression, then you definitely will look at a tree farm and be like, wow, look at that beautiful forest. And yeah. I think I was guilty of that growing up. And then I, I had the chance to spend time in some old growth ecosystems and was just like, holy shit, we are so far from where we need to be. And kind of what has been seen cannot be unseen. And so I think about that a lot. Like, how do we get especially younger people, because the those who are entrenched in their ways um, are, you know, at older um, periods of their life, I think are a little bit harder to, to change. But how do we get young people to see, to develop the sensitivity, to not see a landscape as it is? Um, but there was this part in your book that I really loved in Bring Back Beaver, where you you spoke about surveying the ruin of a landscape. And you had this, this part that I'll just quote, because it was so so good. You said you interpreted the landscape and recognized beneath the veneer of modern human activity, the ghosts of ancient beaver dams and the silted pans that they had left behind. And there was another part where you spoke about finding these empty nests of the water voles. And for me, that seems like a really interesting place to start. It's how do you overlay what the landscape was to where it is today and show people that gap and train them in the way that you managed to do, which was like, I don't see a landscape. I see ghosts. I see the shapes of things that were things that could be, but definitely not the things that are like, that seems like a really important skill to hone in young people as they're sort of growing up in these impoverished plains and moors. Well, you can talk to young people. And I mean, I've taught many times to many audiences of young people. I used to work in environmental education and I've I met many and I'm not sure, well, I mean, the older you get, the more you realise actually that you don't know as much as you thought you did, but you certainly become much more insightful, I think, in time. Um, showing people these things is quite possible. There are, there are many different forms of life that mark the earth. Um, with their presence and and some of those markings you know for example um, you know the kind of wonderful paths and flat booming platforms that kakapo parrots you know used to make in New Zealand um, before they they were they, they were forced out of the, their mainland habitats by a whole range of different introduced predatory species you know still endure and water bowls are kind of like the same the way they they sculpt bank sides with the little feeding platforms and and their burrows and, and their runs from the, the head of the river bank to the base. These things last for, okay, do they last for centuries? Well, maybe, maybe not. But I mean, they certainly last for many decades after the animal's gone and are quite widely visible in many parts of Britain if you just care to look. I mean, the same with the beaver dams. Yeah, that beaver dam complex up on the Barbrook, I mean, it was it was quite something. I and mean, you look at it from the air and you look at where the water just slews backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And then you look at a modern beaver dam complex and you can see exactly the same pattern with, with the big difference being that, of course, the modern dam complexes are trees, whereas that, that, that um, moor above Sheffield has no trees anymore because the trees were you know, cut down by us in the Bronze Age and then possibly Willow regrew at some stage when the Saxons were here. And 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 then, you know, there's been this process of wax and wane and wax and wanes, our fortunes failing and the fortunes of animals for a time recovering. 
but in the end, we got them all because, you know, we became the dominant land force on this island. And, you know, I do think it's absolutely the case. If you want to see, you know, what an end game looks like in the Northern Hemisphere, then you just come to Britain where we're worrying about tiny insects and bugs and hoverflies and lichen because all the big creatures have gone. And the big creatures are the things that, through their natural activities, create living space for the small ones. And without, you know, it's like having a, a, a an engine and looking at a part of the engine and, and, and not really understanding that, you know, even if this, I don't know, the, this air filter duct is important in its own right to ensure that, you know, you've got some sort of process of, of, of heating or cooling in your car, that it doesn't work without the bloody engine. It's as simple as that. And, and what we've lost is, 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 is the engine, is the kind of pilot light and the boiler. Everything's still there in bits and fragments, but it's not working because the thing that drives us is, 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 it has gone. And that's really where the beaver came from, is that you know, it's the animal. If you put it in a, a riparian landscape, it will you know, fell the trees, create open sunny habitats, create pools, create complicated canals, um, allow the vegetation to to flourish again, to to produce its pollens and rhizomes and tubers that so many other species depend upon. But then the next challenge with that is that you realise that some of these species, like the water vole, which lived alongside them for 40 million years and which in its own right cuts little holes in the or cuts myriads of holes in the sides of the beaver canals, and by doing so, Gorgonzola's the beaver banks. It just isn't there. It's gone. It's gone, and it's the basis of the food chain. It's the basis of slowing the flow of water as well, because it complicates the bankings. It's the, the thing that diversifies the, the plant communities still further and extends the root systems by feeding on tidally on them. And all those functions, this little thing brought, finish when the little thing's gone. And I'm quite, quite sure that we're going to find as we go, you know, as we continue this journey, that there are going to be more and more creatures like this, that 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 either because of their absence or their presence or their compromise in certain environments, just diminish still further the ability of other life to survive. So it's it's a complicated process. But then the good thing is, with the return of the beaver, you start the function again. You know, it, the the light goes back on, the engine starts to tick over, ducks come back in, newts return to breed. You know, your density of water beetles goes you know goes up by four hundred percent, and and every other guild of life that is still there is able to look at, at these these green oases re- reforming, and if they can slither, fly crawl or trot return to find them you know in, in landscapes that have been very badly abused by us so you know if, you, if you're a person of any intelligence there's no problem about understanding that and to come back to your 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 your, your, your initial question about what it is in people's heads that refutes this truth the answer is i don't know i mean clever people come up with excuses as, as to why this is unacceptable why you know their liking should be more important than a a living, breathing, gurking, croaking, quacking world. And and I don't know why they do that. I have no idea. It's not my mindset. It's it's something that's small and peculiar and that idolizes a hoverfly or a fish or a or a like and whatever. And and those are the guys that are supposed to be on side and are supposed to be allies when it comes to species recovery. 
you know, you, they, the farmers, you'd expect nothing of an opposition from. So I saw that. I saw that um, that example on your Twitter feed this morning, and it's a group that I also respect immensely for some of their work. And I was actually very surprised to see that. Um, mm. Also, because the lichen need the trees to be on, and if the ecosystem's dying and overgrazed, and you know, it's just it's seems like a bit of a very myopic way of seeing an ecosystem for people who work with with ecosystems well i think it may be that the trees for life have gone along with other organizations who are infinitely less liberal than they are but the problem is that yeah you know i've just had a week where we've, we've sat down with all with 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 the natural england to discuss how, how we move forward with beavers and and really the return of the beaver is a fairly binary thing it's like a colleague of mine from, from, from Denmark once explained, when it comes to the return of the wolf in, in Denmark, the wolf is a creature that divides the water. You are either for it or you are against it. And there isn't a middle ground. And therefore, you come at times to an elemental human struggle where you say it is either going to be one way or it's going to be the other. And if you believe firmly that your way is the correct way, then you have to fight for that. There will be some talking with people who are reasonable and there will be education and there will be persuasion, but there will be some people who oppose to the last cell in their body the course of action that you advocate and they will do everything they can, literally everything they can, to ensure it does not happen. And that's just the reality. And therefore, trying to... To, 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 to create something that's entirely inclusive that brings them in where we all sit down and have a cup of green tea and a nice wee chat and then move on. It's not going to be that way. And you might as well realise that at the beginning. Even though I think one would prefer to see it another way, that is just your, the lucidity of what you're saying and, and the practicality I think is really important because we, you know, we can't waste more time trying to create these dialogues if at the end of the day, I mean, that was what was so striking about your book was time and time again, you got so close and then someone, something, some logger-headed fellow or or female just sort of blocked, blocked these, these years and years and years of efforts. And I just don't know how you did it to be quite honest, like your, your, your perseverance, you are as perseverant as the beaver. And I have to say, after I, I finished reading the book. I've spent some time with beavers because I lived up in British Columbia for a while. I um, spent a little bit more time with otters who also are uh, just absolutely wondrous creatures. But I uh, I binge watched for about two and a half hours beaver videos on YouTube. <laughs> one video led to another video, led to another video. And for anyone who's listening, I mean, just please just go to YouTube and start watching beaver videos mm. and how they terraform. And there was this one little fellow who like, spent, I don't know, two months, you know, he left his, he left his clan and was like, okay, I'm going to go on my own now. I'm trained. I'm going to make my own family. And he starts beaving, building his dam. And then, you know, a, a flood surge comes and the whole thing's wiped away. And he's just like, all right, I'm just going to get right back to it. And when I was reading your book, I was just thinking how your perseverance really uh, mirrored that of the beaver. And I'm sure you've been told that before, but I thought it was incredibly interesting. Uh, yeah. On the subject of, of, the, the introduction of large predators. Um, you know, if people resisted the beaver because of their fields and, and all of these other kinds of things, the, the large predators are more tricky, right? The wolves, the wildcats, or the woodcats, as I think I saw you had written recently, because they're also a direct threat to our hegemony or our perceived hegemony. Um, and something that could attack us or eat us, even though they don't really want to eat us or attack us, 
um, is something that we've just been so over domesticated to be terrorized of and, and to, to shutter that away at all cost. Um, there's an example I really liked, which was I spoke with um, Christine Tompkins, who's a friend, and she was sharing about how they reintroduced the jaguar um, in Latin America, in, in South America. And before reintroducing the jaguar, they had to do a whole campaign with the schools and the communities and re, you know, resuscitate the pride of the of the jaguar and the stories and the myths. And people there were really proud, right? Of like, we have the jaguar back. He's going to be our hero. We're and and I wonder when I look at European society if we could do the same for the wolf in the same way in the same ways we had wolf clans and we had wolf dances and we had. Um, you know, we had these 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 kind of pagan animistic ways of honoring the wolf, and I'm wondering if we could we could do the same in Europe as as what they did with the jaguar in Latin America. I think the thing is, you look at if you look at some of the wolf. I mean, in part, feet of the bit. One of the there are many excuses for 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 not having beavers here. You know, people will tell you who oppose it will tell you, well, it's the it's the thin end of the wedge. You start with beavers, you're going to finish with wolves, and therefore you can't even begin with beavers and and. There are people who have always picked an answer and the answer is no. And then they sit in their own in a dark room or or maybe they have a few few of their remates who think the same who come along to join them and they come up with the biggest heap of shit you can ever imagine. And then they try and peddle it to people just to make them frightened. And, and one of the stupidest ones I ever heard um, was that, you know, we can't have beavers in this country because the Elizabethans declared them to be vermin. Uh, and they knew the animal, and therefore they knew something we didn't. Now, for anybody, again, who has any interest in history, the Elizabethans were the people who are burning witches at the stake. Yeah. And, and they're also, um, you know, their church is is trying to figure out at lofty church meetings. So there's a lot of fat bishops and, 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 and abbots sitting there slurping pickled cod. And, and, and they're trying to figure out these meetings, how you're going to sort of like conduct a dialogue with the tribes of dog-headed people they expected to find in South America when you turn around to them and say, right, I'm going to give you some beads for your country, and they turn back to you and say, woof. Okay? So that's the level of the Elizabethans intellect at points. And the idea that we're now going to turn around and say, well, they knew something we didn't, it's just, you know, it's... Well, it takes a real luminary to come up with that one. But that aside, I mean, turning the wolf into God, well, there is a time when they were gods. I mean, there's, there's, there's working on a book about the history of wolves in Britain at the moment, and, 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 and there have been a couple of little bronze sculptures found. There was a, a oh, I'm trying to struggle to think, but I think it might have been a Saxon cult of wolf worship, and they had these wee wee icons of, of, of a wolf devouring quite commonly a man which were made in brass and, and, and they worshipped these and maybe there was some form of sacrifice associated with them. But the wolf, like many other wild animals, existed with us at a time when, when we looked up to them and they were gods. They had power that we didn't have. They were stronger. They were bigger. They were fiercer. They were faster. If you were a beaver, you could adapt landscapes in a way that people simply couldn't. And therefore, you know, at different times, different people, different landscapes, different cultures admired these creatures greatly, even if they killed them. But we in Britain have come a thousand years at least away from this. You know, we've come away with you know, the medieval church in our heads telling them, telling us that they've been sent from Satan. We've come away with 
you know, again, the idea that this is a, a creature, a waste and desolation, and that Jesus is the good shepherd who looks after the sheep and looks after people. And, and that this thing, this thing is just evil. And, and you know, you look at, you know, there are very few accounts in Britain, and if there are even, even words that, that mention wolves together in, in less than a sentence, there are few people that describe them. I mean, there are maybe some odd place names where it's the glade where the wolf cubs play. But if people talk about them, they always talk about them as being something that's horrifying. Occasionally, you'll get a medieval account that says that somebody has been paid a bounty for catching and not killing a wolf. And as soon as you look at that word catching, you wonder what the end of that animal was. Because I can assure you that having looked at, at, at the British history of them and, 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 and looked at what's written about them in Scandinavia or, or, or indeed continental Europe, that there was no level of barbarity in the darkest of minds that we did not descend to when it came to that creature. Our, our persecution of it was 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 beyond unspeakable words and when we had it in our power you just uh, you, you, I'm not even going <laughs> to I'm not even going to I'm not even going to describe some of the things we did so so I think I think hauling it back from that position of hatred and abuse well it might be possible if you look at you know there was a recent um, um, poll I think under uh, in Holland about the the wolves in Holland and how people feel about them there and what we should do with the wolves in Holland and and it was something like seventy seven percent of people that were asked said the wolves should stay and you look at that and think that's a really good result until you actually look at the number of people in the same poll that said yeah but we really hate, hate the Turks and 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 there's something very dark now about them as well and they've almost become this kind of like beast of the far right that they've been hijacked to be something that's you know is better to have them than it is to have immigrants and and so i don't know it, it would be something i mean there are many people who view them in a very different way and it is very fair to say that the bad people in society are now nothing like as prevalent as as was once the case and that most people you know of rational thought or mindset would consider you know their abominations to be just that um, but but we ha have a long way to go before we come to an understanding with this creature. If you look at the writing of um, Aldo Leopold, you know who wrote um, "Thinking Like a Mountain" and was, yeah. you know, just just what a hundred years before where we are, you know, and it is understanding that you know the landscape's not frightened of the carnivores, what the landscape's terrified of are the herbivores that flee it to a skeleton. Us taking wolves back on that basis, uh, I don't know. That part of, of thinking like a mountain where he sees the glint in the wolf's eye as it dies and understand that he's um, killed something so sacred. Yeah, I, oh gosh, you shared so much. I don't know where to start. First of all, I'm really excited to to learn from you this the history of the wolf and all of these tales. That's going to be such a fascinating book. Um you know, I work in the I work in the in the climate or sustainability movement or whatever kind of stupid term you want to give it. Um the anti-extinction movement, I think, is probably more correct. And I don't use the word hope because it's such a cheesy word, but I don't have a lot of starry-eyed optimism for where we can get to if we don't understand how to bring other forms of life back into our landscapes, because we can never reach ecological integrity without them. And if we don't reach ecological integrity, the climate, our ecosystems, the biosphere, the geosphere will always be out of whack. And yes, we can 
put massive plantation plants across the land and draw down carbon. And yes, we can electrify with, you know, precious minerals um, mined out of, uh, you know, Mongolia and parts of the world where it's out of sight, out of mind. But fundamentally, this, this idea of we need to reintroduce life back in, otherwise our ecosystems are never going to be healthy. And the part of that that I find the most um, depressing is we don't know how to let other humans in. We don't know how to allow other forms of life into our models of the world. You spoke to the immigrants. I think I wrote a piece once that compared wildlife corridors with human migration corridors and the ability of life's nervous system and blood system just to flow, right? You look at the salmon swimming and then you Mm. see the dams. That's one obstruction. You see the the Mexican-US border and you have Guatemalan mothers holding their children and mountain lions, both trying to cross the same goddamn wall. And so Mm. all of these fences and walls and nooses that we've put around the the the, the body of the planet Mm. that block human beings and other creatures is, I think, one of the most under spoken about issues of our time because humans will be moving animals will be moving the you know the the rising temperatures and climate crisis doesn't discriminate against species we're just one species among so many others Mm. um and and i wonder if the way that we begin to prepare society to integrate quote unquote the other which is actually the self in a kind of spiritual way if we can start to train people to say okay how do we bring in other forms of life other humans maybe we might be more willing to accept other animals as well. Because otherwise, I'm not that hopeful, to be quite honest with you. Um, The walls will get bigger, the defenses will get stronger, and we'll live inside very sanitized, hyper-technologized systems of production and consumption. And that's just not a a world I want to live in, to be quite honest. We'll live live inside the sort of thing you see um, in the Lorax whereby you have plastic trees and plastic grass and and in the end you're persuaded that actually you've got to buy air um because because it just doesn't doesn't it just doesn't smell and taste so good. And then you look at what's outside and outside is just death. But it doesn't need to be that way. I mean there are plenty of examples of people who think very differently. And I mean just to take one step back from this is that you know when you look at your exclusion of people and your exclusion of animals, then what you find as soon as you start to look at history is is that as soon as you have an aggressive colonial culture or a frontier culture, it views animals, wilderness and people all as obstructions. So uh, you know, a Penobscot Indian in in the 17th century in 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 North America. You know, you're paying the same sort of bounties for them as you're paying for wolves. That's it. They're just it's just vermin that stands on its two hind legs as opposed to running on four. There's there's no difference at all. It's in the way of progress. It's jobs. It's livestock. It's industry. It's whatever excuse it is, and and it has to be swept out of the way. Sooner the better. That's it. So that has always probably been a, 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 a part of what we are. As soon as you start to get to the stage where you're saying, "Well, you know, it doesn't have to be this way," then you know, there are people. I mean, you know, you look at Alan um, Watson Featherston, you know, and his 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 you know his Trees for Life campaign originally, and the idea that you know one person can take responsibility for reforesting the Highlands of Scotland. And okay, he hasn't reforded the Highlands of Scotland, but what that man has done is sent the most magnificent example 
in his lifetime of individual achievement. You know, he's he's encouraged so many people to plant trees and, and his some of his project sites now demonstrate very aptly, you know, what can be done in a landscape where many people would look at it and say, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. You know, Alan's works demonstrated that, you know, I, I would love to see some, some in, in, exclosures, enclosures, you know, where, where the deer were fenced out two or three years ago in, um, in um, the Glen of the Fintorn, where probably one of the last wolves in Scotland was killed. And, and outside the exclosures, there's nothing. The bloody deer have eaten everything. You know, there's one or two old aspen, which every year send out all these suckers. And every year the deer come down from the mountains and take absolutely ever, everything. So these old trees, you know, if they can look down on their offspring, well, in, in the end, their offspring are going nowhere. I don't know if trees can weep, but you're just going to watch your children, your great-grandchildren, everything killed all the time. Then you get to the exclosures, and where those herbivores aren't, you have um, you have you have rowan, you have juniper, you have singing birds, you have life, you know, bursting in and out, feeding its chicks, um, you know, from 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 what exists in the surrounding landscape, and it shows you what could be, and how do we change this? Well, you know, I don't know. I'm not involved with Extinction Rebellion, and I'm just picking them out of, of, of thin air as an example. But, you know, I can't be doing with these these groups that, that jump up and down and scream and that glue themselves to things, because at the end of the day, there's no pragmatic agenda for doing anything. You know, okay, I've seen so many climate emergencies declared. What the fuck does it mean? You know, it doesn't mean any greater resource when it comes to actually changing anything, it doesn't mean that you're going to simplify legislation or turn around and say, right, those of you who have a will to do, those of you who know, those of you, you know, what we need is we need the best minds applied to this. You look at COVID and then you take me at a COVID vaccination program in the UK. Well, I've had both my vaccinations now. And I'll tell you, you know, when you go to those clearing centres, it shows you we can still do things well. Courteous people, well organised, everything efficient, you know, you know, a pretty reasonable level of care and sympathy for people, and it's all processed efficiently and well. Now, I'm sure it's not always been that way, but my experience, if it was typical of much of how it was done, shows you that we can organise for a good end result. I think the shambles that comes from what we normally do is just down to the fact that you know, things like nature conservation despite the rhetoric, is really not that important. What you do is you leave people who are really not very able with fairly poor resources to try and sort out something they don't understand and actually makes them quite frightened. And, and if you pick individuals who are scared of failure in the first instance, then what they're going to do is what they're always inclined to do is nothing much. Because if you actually do something, if you do or don't do something and it might go wrong, whereas if you do nothing at all, then in the end... You marginalise your your ability to, to 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 go off the rails. So I don't know how you sort that out. That's got to be down one for leaders and, and people at the top to address. But it's it's certainly not working as is. Um, it's time for change. You said something there that I want to pick up on. You know, it shows you what could be. Do you want your farm to be one of those places where people can come and see what could be? Well, it'd be nice to think so. <laughs> I mean, and and as the sun starts to shine down and the vegetation um, starts to grow, um, my daughter has just appeared now with a, a knitted, what is that? It's a crochet bag. Okay. <laughs> cool. Right. You come and sit down, Maisie. Um, <laughs> is that um, 
is it's a good example of what could be. Uh, it's not an easy thing to run. It's no walk in the park. It's because we're not farming in the way that most people farm now. Um, it's something that involves, you know, and then because it employs a lot of people to do jobs that should be done, um, employ, it involves you know a considerable amount of juggling to maintain something like this. Um, um, you know, on on the you know on the on the crest of any kind of wave. But yeah, I mean, I would like to think that we can pragmatically, looking forward, um, work year on year to improve this farm as an example of how you can take a landscape and change it to 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 just just give nature a chance to create holes in the pastures for the cleft nesters by dumping big piles of smashed concrete and 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 to you know to reintroduce the adders back into grasslands that are not all shorn as bare as a pool table um, by the sheep you know to, to to put in you know multiple complexes of ponds and pool systems so there are dragonflies and damselflies and great flying jeweled abundance but at the end of the day uh, it, it's going to take time to do how has your farm uh, shifted what the neighbors are doing and looking at? I mean, have you had neighbors who were traditional farmers and they're like, oh, that's kind of interesting? Because I know in, in the agriculture movement where, where I spend quite a bit of time, you can shout off the rooftops to put cover crops and no-tilling and adopt biologicals, etc. But the most successful case examples are the ones where, you know, like Gay Brown and others where... They just started doing it. It worked, and the neighbors were like, "Huh, that looks like that looks like a viable alternative." So, so I'm curious if if you've had uh, people around you who have sort of uh, seen something working and and just well, open their minds by seeing it. In as much as we ever have conversations about it, some of them will say, "Well, I can see how it works for you, Derek, but I don't think it would work for us because at the end of the day, we don't have." We don't have the knowledge, we don't have the contacts, we don't have the will to do it. Um, we're used to doing what we want to do. And then some would say, well, we're farmers. We're not here, you know, to, to return this land to a wilderness, to to reopen the, the drains that the, the generation before us put in to drain the, the swampy sphagnum sponges dry. We, we're not doing any of this bollocks. You know, we're here to to grow corn or milk cows or whatever else. And we're going to do it the way we've always done it, which is always a good laugh because, you know, if you look at the way we've always done it, well, probably less than the life, virtually less than a lifetime before you wouldn't be done it with a, doing it with a big tractor. You'd be doing it with an animal. It's got four legs, a mane and whinnies, and it's called a horse. And there are bloody few of those left here. So, you know, it's it's this idea that nothing ever changes and, and that we've always done it. Well, of course, everything changes all the time. You know, the magnitude of something like switching from horsepower to, you know, to, to internal combustion engines was absolutely vast. I think, you know, actually, at the end of the day, you have to, however hesitantly it, it, it comes, you have to follow the courage of your own convictions if you possibly can in life. I always remember somebody at one of Tim Schmidt's things at Eden, you know, giving us presentation about whether, you know, if you could travel back in time to look at your own gravestone, whether you'd want to have the words etched on it, I'm glad I did rather than I wish I wish I had. And I think that summed it up rather rather well. You know, if you're going to do something different, you're going to be very unafraid of mistakes because at the end of the day, you're going to make them, and they're called lessons, and they involve learning. And once you've made mistakes in your own money or your own land or your own animals or your own people, then then you kind of tend to look at it and try to avoid making the same ones again. And that's always a, a really good good way of viewing things but yeah it's it's none of it's as simple as it looks 
you have to kind of like um, roll with it. Uh, me sitting here saying I want to do it this way has not always been an easy course of action for everybody. Meant an easy course of action for everybody else. So. Um, but I think it's right, and I have no intention of changing tack. Well, it takes a dynamic mind to work in on a dynamic world, right? Our world is, is as you said, everything's constantly shift and changing, and. That was something I really appreciated in, in what you wrote in your book was, yeah, we're going to get it wrong the first times and some animals are going to die because this is this, this hasn't really been done before and we're just kind of feeling it out. But I think for, for anyone, you know, we talk, we talk also on the podcast about like, what are the skills and sensitivities required to do all of this kind of work well, this reintroduction of life and, and, this, and this kind of re-enmeshing with life. And you mentioned a really important one, which is listening, looking, adapting, being sensitive, being like, okay, like this is what the beaver is telling me it wants. This is what the vole is telling me or it doesn't want. And, and it, it's, it, it requires, I guess, a lot of humility <laughs> to be able to just see what happened and, and move on from it and not remain entrenched. But that's the only way to work with nature because nature is constantly changing and adapting and telling us what she needs or what she wants. You certainly need to have a preserve a capacity to rethink things, that's for sure. Yeah. Any journey you begin with, you know, kind of firm conviction, you know, at its outset can 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 very rapidly turn into something you never expected as 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 you um make your way through the forest. What's the conviction you recently changed or shifted from? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, one one of the interesting ones was of course, you know, you know, you go to Holland, you look at the rewilding theory and the idea that within a ring fence, all these animals are going to be wild and you can leave them to their own devices. And of course, that's not realistic because animals become sick and you have a duty of care to them and you, you're you going to have to manipulate that. But, you know, one of the things we tried to keep here was a herd of het cattle, which are the ones that resemble the cave paintings. They were made by the Germans between the First and Second World War. And they, you know, by people like um, Goering and Himmler, who wanted to have them as 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 this example of how you could through genetic selection create an animal from the great Teutonic legends that that the heroes like Siegfried used to hunt. Uh, and of course as soon as you take a bunch of animals like this and um, turn them out into a forest and you leave an equal bull cow ratio in the group, these things very, very quickly decide that they actually they don't really want to have, uh, to live a life that has much to do with you at all. They want to get on with their own lives. And then you've got to bring them in once a year for T B testing. And to say that in the end it became a horrific experience is is no under-exaggeration of what it was like. I don't want to fight with, with prehistoric cattle. We just have cattle that just, you know, when you rattle a bag of feed, they come to you and they kind of like view you in a sort of amicable sort of way. And that hasn't ended well. So um, we now know that if we're going to have animals, as and we are going to have to have animals with clean blood and, and um, clean feces out sculpting, these environments we wish to create because that blood and feces is very important for, for for a whole range of smaller creatures that rely on these commodities, then the animals out there are going to have to be manageable ones and not things that have this urge in their head to utterly run free because otherwise it simply will it will not be tolerable in any other way. So that's been quite a good life lesson and we've come right back to keeping the friendly ones now. So wouldn't someone who doesn't want the wolves, wouldn't they rebut you and say, well, exactly, we don't we don't want the unfriendly wolves in our landscape, just like you don't want your unfriendly prehistoric, you know, sharp horned cattle around. The wolves are not like that. No, I mean, we're, at the end of the day, there are things that might have an interest in us. And I'm quite sure that you know, if you if you look at what we know of them, they're, 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 they can be 
very curious with regard to people, especially young ones. And and I think you have to bear in mind, it's still very easy sitting here and you with a computer screen in front of you and, and cars parked outside and a house with a wood burner and tea cooking on the stove to think that in our cosy world, it's very hard for us to put ourselves in the mindset of somebody from earlier times. But you know, if you just kind of like, you know, go back two months and into a different season when you'd be wandering these clay roads in the early Middle Ages in clothing that was not waterproof or in clothing, you know, you you know, so when you're leather sodden, that's it, it comes through, it comes through into your heavy woolen clothes and you can you know, you'd be walking like a Michelin man. And and then the roads are poorly kept, there are huge cavities in them, you can disappear into the roads, no problem. And the wind's howling and the sleet's blowing in a sheet and, and you're out of time and you're on your own and you're you know, your horse is bolted and, and everything is just shit. And in this wilderness, there might not be a wilderness, in this landscape of despair and cold and fear, these things come out trotting out of a forest to look at you. I don't think we can really rationalise how people would have felt about something like that. And therefore, I think you can look back and you can you can greatly forgive ignorance and fear and misunderstanding and you know the screaming ranting shrieking calls they make at night which are not howls and be really afraid but we're not there now and if we're going to come forward ourselves as a species we need to come to terms with things like that and when you know you're you're listening to people who are still full to the ears of hatred and and, and apprehension with regard to something that really isn't a particularly significant issue at all. You look at the number of people, you know, today who are attacked and killed by domestic dogs. You look at the number of people, of, of, of sheep that are killed by domestic dogs. And if we eliminated the wolf because we were we were afraid of it and, and, and we didn't want it predating on our livestock, why on earth did we keep this infinitely smaller, infinitely more savage cousin? It makes not a blind bit of sense. And yet these things are our closest companions. More, many people have no other friends other than, other than the dog that accompanies them through life. So it's it's a very odd mindset. You, you really transported me to that guy walking down that path. <laughs> I've never thought of it quite in that way. Before we sign off, I wanted to ask you, it's, it's, it's an impossible question to answer, but like, why are you so in tune with what the land wants and needs? Like, why did you just say, I, we need to work with the voles, we need to work with the beavers? What is it about your own way of, of being that develops such a care for these creatures? Um, I can imagine that it's something deeply intuitive. And, you know, yes, maybe you read a lot of Gerald Earl's books when you were a child, and that really affected your love and care for animals. And I'm sure there's things you can point to, but I'm fascinated by how people become who they are and how they are, how they become those who speak on behalf of other species in such a potent way like you do. You and the people you work with, and I'm, I'm sure your family as well, but but what is it that kind of sculpted that and made that happen? Well, I don't know about my family. I didn't know my father very well. He died when I was very young, but I mean, the people who did know him, um, you know, said that he was very interested in nature and he did care, but I wouldn't know. By the time I knew him, he was he was not a very well man. and We didn't know each other at all. So 
My fa- you know, it is quite interesting. If you re- reflect on your family, I mean, they lived in very different times. I mean, Dad and his brother were children in a workhouse in Dundee. And when they finished their time in the, the workhouse because their mother had committed suicide, one went into the, the regular army and was captured by the Japanese at the fall of Hong Kong. And the other one went into the Merchant Navy and was sunk two times. And the times that he, he was on those convoys, came back from, from the war, tried to to make a life for himself, achieved it for a while, and then ultimately just dissolved. So I think you have to start to look at what's in you and pull what's in you out of the the immediacy of yourself and appreciate how lucky you are to be given the opportunity to do something that is more important than, than the lives that other people had no option but to live. So for dad, um, the idea that you're going to live a life moving and saving and reintroducing beavers would have been, why would you have done that? It, it wouldn't even have seemed to have been a credible prospect. And yet I've been lucky enough to do it. So I think at the end of it, I mean, it's now come to a point where with whatever is left, as far as my being is concerned, I, I I will do what I can to 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 make some sort of future possible for a time for some of these smaller creatures that need an element of human investment and they need to have, I mean, it, it sounds absurd and I'm quite sure there are people who will laugh and and, and, and there are possibly a few who will sneer um, when they, um, they hear me what I'm, I'm going to say next. But I've, I've spent, I mean, one of my kids is sitting here listening and in the time that, you know, because they're, they're, um, older now but when they were little used to spend a lot of time watching shitty children's movies and 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 you and you you know most of them are really pretty dire and i never want to see another thumbelina film as long as i live but you know you look at that thing that lorax thing where you know that that wee thing is sitting in the tower with the beady eyes what's it called can you remember the thing in the tower with the beady eyes the one slug and, and it's saying you know well no it wasn't the bloody one slug it was a lorax wasn't he speaking for the trees no I don't, I don't want to sort of like, you know, I don't get the idea to anybody that I view myself as a Lorax. But in the end, <laughs> there have to be one or two people who say, well, actually, these other creatures are important as well. It's not just all about us and our lives. It's also about their lives, too. We, we There is, you know, there never was a God-given dominion that we hold the right over every other creature on this planet to be or not to be. It has to get to the point where some people say no, and we have to do what we can as individuals for them. And it's as simple as that. And 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 uh, so when it comes to the nature conservation me- meetings now and the chats and the correspondence and everything else, I don't give a shit about how other people feel about it. The only thing I have any interest in at all, full stop, is what we're doing for these creatures. Not people, not egos, not PhDs, not big vehicles, not research institutes, not anything else. It's about what we're doing or not doing for animals, birds or plants. And that's it. It's not very complicated. It's not at all complicated, Derek. I'm I'm so with you. Um, I always say that everything that I'm doing isn't for necessarily the human story (laughs) whatsoever. It's just for all the other forms of life who are our kin, right? And... Oh, oh gosh. Thank you. That was such a poignant way to, to close the conversation. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed listening to that quite as much as I did recording it. I have a pending visit to Derek's 300-acre rewilding farm on the Cornwall border. So stay tuned for that special episode, hopefully coming soon. 
thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in just two weeks' time. We'll be delving into arguably the most mysterious of all the kingdoms, that of the fungi. I would love to hear from you and please reach out to me on the website lifeworld.earth where you can also find all of the show notes and an awesome open source library ranging from everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon.